right? So we're going to be going through all of chapter 5. Though Jerry just read magnificently just one key portion. And because we have so much text to cover, and because we have a very special rare event of a baptism during the gathering, I'm going to just jump right in. This right here is a historical document. And I know that if I tested most of you here, you would, and this was on the multiple choice, you would be like, yeah, historical document. But I think it's really, really important for us to keep that in mind because sometimes, especially if you grew up in the church, you couldn't forget that this is actually truth. This is a historical record of who God is, what he's done, what he will do, and what does that mean for us? And tonight, this is particularly important because chapter 5 describes the fall of one of the world's superpowers. It's a night that shifted the, the whole course of history and had effects far-reaching even to this day. And I want to talk about history for a second because chapter 5 can be disorienting. Because for the last four chapters, which has been like seven sermons for us, we've been talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. And all of a sudden when you read chapter 5 verse 1, there's a King Belshazzar. Or Belshazzar. Who is this guy? Where is he coming from? And it feels kind of jarring. In the last chapter, we hear about Nebuchadnezzar's antics and how he ultimately could not humble himself, though God gave him warning after warning. And it got, got to the point where Belshazzar, the ickiness, the beastliness of his heart became what his outward appearance became. So for a season, he became like a beast, living among wild animals and looking like a wild animal himself until finally he realized that he was not God and that God of Israel is the most high God and he humbled himself and worshipped him. So you guys were here last week, Pastor Ross did, was one of my favorite sermons of Pastor Ross. If you were there, um, you guys were in for a treat. If you missed it, please take a listen. And I just encourage you also to just... Give him some honor, some time, and, and encourage him and affirm him, because Ross has been laboring on his preaching for so so long, and you can see just how powerful of a preacher he's becoming by God's grace. So make sure you give him some, some love and respect if God has been using his preaching in your faith. But what we see in chapter 4 is not what we see in chapter 5. Chapter 4, we see... The mightiest king of the whole world humble himself. In chapter 5, we see the direct opposite of a very puny, wannabe, dress-up kind of king not humble himself. And that's a lesson for us today. And yet, what is so striking to me that I think it's just good to remember is that in chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar, a genocidal, mass-murdering, idolater, serial murderer, humble himself. As far as I can tell, his repentance was genuine. We'll probably see him in heaven. God is merciful, isn't he? And so, after Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself, he reigns for about 20 more years, and then he dies. And then Babylon starts a slow spiral of descent. Things get crazy. So, let me just run through this real quick. So, Nebuchadnezzar dies, and then his son, evil Murdoch, that's his name, took over, and he was quickly assassinated by his brother-in-law, okay? This king then reigned for four years and then was assassinated and succeeded by his son, who was killed within a month by Nabonidus. Crazy. 
So, Nabonidus had an affection for the god, the moon god, Sin. And this moon god was not the, the supreme god of the Babylonians. And this made the priests of Babylon nervous. This could not be. And so what they did, and it's hard to know, the historical record is a little hazy, but they basically shipped him out, and for 10 years he lived hundreds of miles away from Babylon. So his son, Belshazzar, became the de facto king, which later on you'll see he can only offer Daniel third in the kingdom because he couldn't give him second because he was second. But he functionally acted like the king. So when you hear king, know that he technically isn't the king, but he's functioning as the king. Now all that is important. You'll see soon. But one final note about um, this text, particularly about Belshazzar and his line. You're going to see the word father used here. And father in Aramaic, like Hebrew, doesn't necessarily always mean that that is my direct father. Just like I'm a son of Adam, though my dad was named Submit. Okay? Uh, we can speak that way even in English, and in Hebrew and Aramaic they did the same thing. So if that helps you understand, how is this working? Now... As we get into chapter thir five, it's been 30 years since chapter four. And I know that when I read that, I'm like, man, that's a lot of history we're missing in Daniel. What's going on? That's a lot of history and a lot of things that could have happened for God's people in Babylon. But one reminder from one scholar that I read was helpful. The book of Daniel was not written, written as a history for Babylon. Because we'll see soon, soon that they're going to be replaced by another kingdom. So it's not really about Babylon, but it's really about God and who he is and what he has done and what he will do and what it means for us. And so that's just a great reminder that this book was written for exiles, for fellow exiles. And, and we've said over and over, we are spiritual exiles. And so this book is so good for us because we're in a land that is not our own. Now. I want to talk about contradictions, in quotes, in the Bible. And I know this is a long aside before we get to the text, but I think this is really important because this is super um, relevant, not only for this chapter, but throughout our exile. Because we're going to constantly hear different words from different experts in the History Channel and so forth claiming some source is contradicting the Bible. So here's the question. What do you do when an outside source contradicts or seemingly contradicts what God's word says? What do you do? Well, here's four options to consider that should be on the screen. Option one, the outside source is right and the Bible is wrong. Okay, the outside source is right and the Bible is wrong. That would be the worst case scenario for Christians. Secondly, the Bible is right and the outside source is wrong. Third, the Bible is right, but because of our cultural biases or our blind spots or whatever, we're misinterpreting the Bible. And sometimes outside sources like science or philosophy or reason in different areas can help us understand things that we're missing in our understanding of the Bible. Fourth, the Bible is right, but we're misunderstanding the outside evidence. So in this chapter, we see that for many years, scholars would debate and say, hey, the Bible's wrong. Who is this King Belshazzar? There's no historical record about Belshazzar. Daniel's just pulling something out of nowhere. Boom, Bible's wrong. Now, what we see is that in the 1850s, John George Taylor found a barrel-shaped cylinder in Babylon, or modern-day Iraq. 
with writing on it. It wasn't touched for over 2,300 years. And once it was deciphered, it describes another ruler in Babylon named Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus. So, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, this connection was always there. And the Bible got it right way before outside sources could discover it. But no one knew it. And so I would say it would go in the, uh, the category number four. The Bible's right, but scholars made the wrong assumption that just because a historical record didn't say it, meant the Bible was wrong. And so that was misunderstanding the outside evidence or misapplying it. Now this is actually important because later on in this chapter, he talks about King Darius. And there's some debate about scholars, and there's kind of a question still on the table. But I think that framework is helpful. It's, it's helpful because throughout our life, we're going to see outside evidence. And that outside evidence will primarily not be from critical scholars or the History Channel, but our own hearts and our own culture. We will read something in God's Word, and it will not settle inside of our tummies. You know what I'm saying? We read something, we're like, mm, that doesn't seem right. And this grid work could help you as you weigh through the inevitable clash of your kingdom and God's kingdom. Your worldview and God's worldview. It will happen. Let me remind you of this essential truth. There's a quote on the screen from Wayne Grudem's latest edition of the Systematic Theology. The Bible cannot be proved to be God's words by appeal to any higher authority. If we ultimately appeal to human reason, logic, historical accuracy, or scientific truth as authority by which scripture is shown to be God's word, then we have assumed the thing to which we appeal to be a higher authority than God's words. One that is more true or more reliable. Now, for the 50% of you that just went, I have no idea what he said, basically it means that if you look to an outside source, like a history channel or some, or some sort of document, as a way to say the Bible is true, you are now letting that outside source be the final authority or greater authority. In other words, outside sources may corroborate what the Bible says, but that doesn't make it true. Outside sources will corroborate what the Bible says because the Bible is true. Are you, are you tracking with me? I know this is a little heady. We don't normally do this, but I felt like this was important. The Bible is true, and therefore things are going to confirm it, but they're not proving it. That's super important. This is the final authority in everything, and everything else lines up with it. And you could use that grid word because we may be missing something or maybe biased, but this is the authority, and this is important throughout Daniel. Because as we've been preaching throughout Daniel, Satan always loves to create counterfeits to who God is and what he does and what he's about and what he provides. And so there's always a counterfeit. And so in, in, in this situation that I'm talking about, it's a counterfeit of authority that we are constantly being bombarded by. What is the final authority in our life? And so I, I want to urge you as God's people and those who may be visitors or skeptics, I'm so glad you're here, that this is what God's word teaches. He is the final authority. Everyone is measured by him and his word. So... Let's finally jump into the text. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This feast is probably something none of us have ever seen. You can maybe imagine like Hogwarts or something like that, a giant room. But we're talking a giant room that 
could fit thousands of people, and this room has actually been uncovered by archaeologists. It had plaster, and a lot of the descriptions of this chapter have been found in archaeology. But again, it's not confirming or proving. It's just corroborating, because it's true. Right? Amen. And this is not some stately dinner where everyone has their penguin suits on and prim or proper. We're talking wild and raucous. Wine is flowing. There are concubines galore. And so because of this mixed audience, I'll let you connect the dots if you know what that is. But there's open, most likely, adultery and fornication everywhere. It is insane. It is a worship service to the Babylonian gods. And as the wine flows and as it starts to alter the mind, you see Belshazzar get up this idea. Hey, there was that one people group that we conquered years ago. And we ransacked that temple. We stole holy vessels. Let's take those out from the treasury and let's get drunk with them. Let's drink with God's or the so-called God of Israel's holy items. Now, what is so shocking and so sad in several ways is that one, Belshazzar did none of this. It's his grandpa who did it, most likely. So here you have a guy who's young, who's trying to be something he's not. He's peacocking, he's playing king dress up. Secondly, the text doesn't say it right now, but later on we will find out that the Medes and Persians have combined their forces to take over Babylon, and they're right outside of the city at that moment. So we don't know exactly what Belshazzar's doing. Maybe he's trying to you know, build up some courage and encourage his nobles and his lords and his generals. Hey, we're fine. you know. Or maybe he's trying to get some favor from their gods. So they're toasting to the gods because they, they feel the weight of giant armies around them. We don't know his heart behind it, but we do see his actions. And he's this counterfeit king trying to parade around with trophies he did not win. He's overcompensating for his inadequacies as the wine starts to flow more and more. The way you treat somebody's stuff is often a signifier of how you feel about the person. And maybe that will help you feel the weight of the heinousness, the ridiculousness of Belshazzar's actions. It, we share an office upstairs, but Ross has a desk. Pastor Ross has a desk. Imagine Ross coming in one day, and he sees me at his desk, using his stuff, and all of his other stuff is just thrown on the ground. What would that communicate to him? That would communicate, I don't give a rip about you and your stuff. See, the way you treat, about, treat someone's stuff often communicates what you feel about the person. And so Belshazzar is trying to show, hey, my gods are the greatest. Israel's God is nothing. I don't even need to worry about it. You can even imagine some people who are there saying, no, no, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And Belshazzar saying to himself, give me this nothing. Yahweh's nobody. Look at it. We conquered him. We got people among our room who we conquered as living, walking trophies. Nothing to fear here. And you can see how insulting this would be to God. And God does have a line. He is very patient, but he does have a line. And you see the line is crossed here. And there's a lesson for us Christians here. Because when I read this, I have a hard time relating, don't you? We're not often in a situation that we're kings and we have God's holy items from the literal temple. And so we can easily give ourselves a pass as we read this passage. We're like, oh yeah, that's not me. That guy's terrible. He's a jerk. But you know what is like us and what, how this connects to us? What does the Bible say about our bodies? 
does it say First Corinthians 6 on the screen? That our bodies are a holy temple. We don't belong to ourselves. The Holy Spirit is in us. We're his temple. Whom have you from God? You are not your own. And so though we're, none of us here are Belshazzar in, in, in the exact same situation, I would say that in many ways we can argue that we're in a, a more dangerous situation. God's very spirit inhabits us, not just these cups. His very spirit is in us, and yet, if you're like me, you can treat your body like it's your own. And whether it's substances, or if it's porn, or Tinder, or if it's the way you use your words and cut down and lash at people, or gossip, or speak harshly to your children, whatever it is, we can treat our body like it's our own, just like Belshazzar. And the danger for us, whenever we read the Bible, is that we often put ourselves as the heroes, typically. And I would encourage you to crawl your heart right into the heart of King Belshazzar and see what God has to speak to you today. This warning is for all of us, including this preacher right here. Belshazzar is going to sober up real quick from his drunken defiance and realize that he's mocked the wrong God. So let's look at it in verse 5 and 6. Immediately... It's an important word. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster, again, found by archaeologists, on the wall of the king's palace, opposite of the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. That word, limbs, gave way, knocked together. That whole area, that... In Hebrew, that's his, the joints of his loins were loosened. You know what that means? It means he soiled his pants. This peacocking, mighty king, the big old king, is humble. Soiling his pants in front of all of his nobles and his wives and concubines. This is the great reversal we see throughout Daniel. Is those who think they're the highest, God is going to bring to be the lowest. So if you ever want a remedy to quicken sobriety, this is one floating hand riding in midair into the wall. And you can imagine everybody laughing and dancing and having a merry old time. And all of a sudden, one by one, people start grabbing each other. So what is that? And everyone looking at all of a sudden our wall, many, many Tekla Parson, which we'll get into in a minute what that means. So the king... Just like Nebuchadnezzar before him, before he goes to God, he goes to his own ways. He goes to his own solutions, his own worldly solutions. So look at the loser wise men who come back. Verse 7. <clears throat> the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Are these guys still around? You guys been catching? They're not really good at what they do. The king declared to the wisest men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and shows me its interface shall be clothed with purple and have chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king, the interpretation. What's the result of the king after they were impotent, unable to do anything? The king, verse 9, Belshazzar was greatly alarmed his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Listen, there is no worldly answer 
for a divine dilemma. And the problem is, is that when there's a divine dilemma, we often, instead of humbling ourselves before God, look for some worldly answer, worldly solution. We usually go to our idols first, trying to find any way we can get away from this discomfort, get away from this problem without humbling ourselves before God. So Daniel summoned, verse 10, the queen shows up because of the words of the king and the lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in this kingdom, your kingdom, who is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The queen here is probably not his mom, but his grandma. She's like the queen mother. And she probably felt like this is deja vu. She's like, I've seen this before. A king absolutely befuddled and floored and shook, and all the wise men are stumped and helpless. And so what is so fascinating about this passage that if you read quickly, you wouldn't pick up, is that what does the queen call Daniel? What does she call Daniel? Daniel. Now, I made a, a, a thing about this earlier on when we were preaching uh, a couple of sermons ago. What do they normally call? Belteshazzar. Why? Because the Babylonians, the moment they conquer you and bring you into their court, they're trying to indoctrinate you. They're trying to reform you. They're trying to break you. They're trying to propagandize you. I don't think that works. <laughs> they're trying to make them someone that they're not. And Daniel is true to who he is. He knows who he is. And for 50 years, they're trying to break him. And it's so cool to me that after 50 years, they just gave up. Let's call him Daniel. Let's stop calling him by his Chaldean Babylonian name. Let's call him Daniel. Daniel, God is my judge. I love that. And that's a great lesson for us because there are going to be people in your life, in your past, definitely the culture, who are going to try to make you something you're not. Trying to make you forget who God has called you to be and what he's done for you. Trying to call you back to the old way. You've got to resist. You've got to remember who you are. I love the words she uses about him, spirit of the holy gods, light and understanding, wisdom, the wisdom of the gods were found in him. Because Daniel is a man of integrity, God's hand and blessing were over his life. And so though their theology and their understanding of who he is and where he gets his power was kind of skewed, the, the impression was unmistakable. And I pray that our church would be like that, that we would live lives in such a way that though they won't understand exactly why, the impression is unmistakable and opens up the door for us to one day open our mouths and tell them where this power comes from, where this joy, where this wisdom, where this light comes from. Let that be, Lord. No, as we see Daniel summoned, don't think of yourself as a teenager Daniel walking in. Think of a 70-year-old man hobbling in. Okay, Daniel's old man. Daniel chapter 5, verse 13. <clears throat> I'm going to skip this for sake of time, but paraphrase. Daniel walks in. And King Belteshazzar, you can kind of see, not Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, you can see it on the screen. Kind of is insulting. 
but it's clear that he doesn't know him. He like is familiar with him, but he doesn't know him personally. It, it seems like Daniel has been kind of out of the scene for the last few years. And he speaks to him in a kind of derogatory, oh yeah, you, the ones that, you're one of the slaves. He's still speaking him, considering him a slave. Here's the king, the mighty old king who inherited it with soiled pants, trying to act like he's somebody. And what does he do? He says, hey, if you can do this for me, I'm going to give you third in the kingdom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hook you up. And I, I think this is so interesting because Daniel, as far as we know, written, has not done anything significant in Babylon in like 20 years or so, 30 years. Which is a great lesson for us because a lot of the Christian life is just day-to-day -day mundane grinding. And Daniel was faithful. And what he did in secret, God eventually brought out into the open. Whenever you see a Christian do something miraculous, something amazing, something courageous, whatever that one moment is, is just the tip of the iceberg of million private moments of faithfulness. And I just love that about Daniel. He's just been out and just doing his own thing, faithfully praying, faithfully loving, faithfully being a good citizen, and then God could call him out after three decades of obscurity. That's a good lesson for us, that you may feel like God hasn't used you yet. Well, God has forgotten you, but just keep plodding along faithfully, and God will call you in significant and insignificant ways for his purposes in due time. Back to the story, chapter 5, verse 17. Belshazzar offers his counterfeit promotion. What does Daniel say? <clears throat> Let your gifts be for yourself. This guy's bold. Imagine that. Hey, um, I'd love to give you a gift. And you say to me, let your gifts be for you. <laughs> That's so insulting. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Just like his grandfather before him, Belshazzar thinks that his money and his power is something he can use to coerce and control people. But you can't buy someone who already has everything. And Daniel knows the true king. Daniel already bowed that morning. So he knows where his allegiance is. He knows his true promotion. He knows that this is all a counterfeit. He knows his ultimate inheritance. He knows that whatever Belshazzar can offer him is ultimately nothing in the grand scheme of things. You can't buy a man like that. I pray that we would be those kind of people. You can't buy me. That, that, that there isn't a price that you can eventually get to where I would compromise on my integrity or my standards. And it says, I, I think it's interesting because the, the queen mother walks in and says, King, live forever. What does Daniel say? King. Because he knows he's going to live for a couple hours. Daniel knows, like, man, even if you gave me that, that title, this whole kingdom is going to, in, in a few hours. He knows that. Look at verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar. And we're getting now to the heart of this chapter. Why this judgment? Why is God doing what he's doing? Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Remember again, just like chapter 1, who gave it? God gave it. Nebuchadnezzar thought he conquered Israel, and it was him. No, no, no. God gave it to him, even though he was the human instrument. It wasn't earned or deserved. It was given by God. And look at verse 19. This is what else God gave him. Very God-like realities. 
All peoples, nations, languages trembled in fear before him. Whom he would kill, he killed, and, and all this stuff. It's just like very godlike language. And what happens when you give a man godlike kind of characteristics and power? Power corrupts often. We all know this. We see this in the news all the time. And what is the result of this power? Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And I explained this to you early on, this context of what happened in chapter 4, how he was driven like a wild beast. His outward body became a picture of what his inward heart was like. And this happened until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Remember, prosperity in itself is not evil, but there are very, very few people who handle it well. Very few people who stay humble. Which is so funny because what do almost all of us pray for? Prosperity. And we just think we're the exception. We'll handle it well. Verse 21 has a key phrase. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms, kingdom of mankind and sets it whom he will. Remember this lesson we taught before. God is in control of whoever is in control. Why is Joe Biden president? Because God put him there. Whether you love him or you hate him or somewhere in between, that's the case for every authority. God sets them and removes them as his will. At his will. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though, listen, you knew all this. When we see others humbled, it is an opportunity for us as a, as a like, flares. Wake up. Your time is coming. Humble yourself. Unless, let this happen to you. The whole kingdom, especially the court, knew the humiliation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And that should have been a signpost for everyone else. You too, warning, humble yourself. And though he saw these things, Belshazzar did not humble himself. Verse 23. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. What's the opposite of, of lifting up yourself? Humbling yourself. Being brought low. And he talks about specifically how he used these vessels from the house of God. But notice this. But the God in whose hand is your breath, in whose hand is your breath, and whose all are all your ways you have not honored. I like how the NLT puts it. I think it's on the screen, Daniel 5.23. Nope, it's okay. Listen carefully. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. Essentially, the God who's given you the very breath that you have and gives you everything you have, you have, you have disregarded him. And you have used that very breath to praise yourself and praise idols and serve yourself instead of God. Notice this term, you have not honored. That's a huge word. And if you're like me, the word honor is kind of stuffy. It's kind of religious. I remember growing up in the Korean church and in different churches growing up, and people would be like, hey, you can't wear shorts or a hat at church or, or in the house of God. You're dishonoring God. And I'd be like, man, you're such a hypocrite. I would say that, but I would think it. You're such a hypocrite. I see the way you treat your wife. 
I see the way you spend your money. Get, get out of here, honor God, because I'm wearing shorts or a hat. And so growing up, I had a very anti-honor word, and especially growing up in honor-shame culture as a Korean-American, it was doubly so. Get this honor out of here. But honor is a word that's throughout the whole Bible emphasized over and over and again. What does this word honor mean? It ultimately means those whom you value, those, those who you look to, that you respect. So any of the teenagers or young adults here who are kind of listening, or any of the Hassan kids watching from home with Corona, when you listen to your parents, you are honoring them because you are saying that you value their words and their wisdom. Or when I show my, love, my, my wife love, not just on Valentine's Day because I have to, but every day in different ways, in word and deed, showing that I'm honoring her, showing that I value her. And so, listen, the way we live our lives, spend our, our, our thoughts, our words, our attention, our finances, our affections, all of it either honors or dishonors God. There is no neutral. Every single thing you do, every aspect of your life, church, and visitors here, either honors God or dishonors God. And Belshazzar's life was weighed. And what came out of that weighing, that testing, was that his life was a life of absolute dishonor of God. So then the hard question comes is, what does your life say? Do you honor God with your life? And again, I... I even inside of me have, have, I have a visceral rejection of that word because people be like, oh, we want to honor you, God, with everything we do. Yada, yada, yada. I don't really care. I'm just saying religious words. But really, does your life honor God? Does your thought life honor God? Does your search history on your computer honor God? Does your words honor God? Does your finances honor God? We have to ask this before, we have to ask this if we really want to take seriously this text. Is my life the same as your life honoring God in everything? Because God sees it all. We're going to look at this judgment a little more. Look at verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel parson. These words are in Aramaic. And it's not certain that they didn't know what it said, but they certainly didn't know what it meant. So all these wise men don't know what it means. So here Daniel is going to come. And he has an interpretation from God. Verse 26. Mene. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. This is very interesting because Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his fall with this dream. And he's given an entire year before he's ultimately judged and become a beast for a season. Belshazzar here... He doesn't know this, but he just has a few moments. What's important for us to take away from this is God doesn't tell you the time. He just gives you the warning, and it's up to you to respond. Do not try to time judgment. Do not be one of those people who say, well, you know what? I know God is merciful. I'll, I'll repent on my deathbed. You don't know you'll have a chance on your deathbed. You don't know if you're going to have dinner tonight. Oh, you know what? Uh, my parents are Christians. They're going to pray for me. I'll be okay. Let me just live it up a little longer. Uh, yada, yada, yada. You don't know. And as you see where the responses of Belshazzar, he thought he could time God's judgment. And this repetition of mene, mene, is classic Hebrew or Aramaic repetition of emphasis. So it means immediately. 
Belshazzar's life in this context was numbered specifically that night but make no mistake all of our lives are numbered look at Psalm 139.16 see if it's up on the screen
falling tonight after a state dinner to Russia and North Korea colluding together. It would be that catastrophe, catastrophic. They were the world's superpower, and they were sitting comfy behind walls that were so thick you could race chariots on them. King Belshazzar and his nobles thought, man, we're fine behind these walls. But as history shows, what they did was one of the most brilliant moves in military history. They took the Euphrates that flowed through Babylon, and they dammed it so that the part that goes through was no longer a rushing river, but like a marsh where you could just kind of wade through. And as they get drunk and as they're worshiping their idols, the armies of the Medes and Persians are silently marching into the heart of the city through a wide open door. And that night they swiftly take over with little resistance and Belshazzar is executed. And notice in verse 31 we see Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Again, hinting at the reality that God is the one who gives kingdoms. God is the one who's always in charge of whoever is in charge. So let's bring this home to all of us as we wrap up. Just like Belshazzar, every single one of us has writing on the wall, in one sense. Writing of the wall of our life. Many. Your days are numbered. Every single person here, our days are numbered. I could die as I say this. Only God knows. And it may be soon, or it may be 30 years, but your days are numbered. And we deserve swift judgment for all of us rejecting God at some level. Yet God has tarried. He has been patient. He has waited. He has given us warnings. He's given us chances. But there will be a day when warnings will turn into judgment day. Tekel. All of us here will be weighed. We will be weighed in God's holy balance. And all of us will be found lacking. Like Belshazzar, all of us have profaned and defiled and violated our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our tongues. We've all failed to honor God as we ought to. All of us, every single one of us, especially me here. And don't say this as someone who feels better than you. And we're all going to be weighed, and you're not going to be weighed against your friends. You will not be weighed against your family or whoever in your life. You will be weighed against God's holy, perfect standard. And you will be found wanting, lacking. Or, if you are putting your trust in Jesus and repenting for your sins. And notice I said that in the present tense. Putting, trusting, repenting. Not if you repented or if you trusted. If you are currently doing that day by day and putting your hope and trust in Jesus, then you are not standing on the scale alone. Jesus is standing instead of you. So his righteous moral worth is attributed to us unworthy people. And he doesn't just stand on the scale for us. He drinks the cup of judgment for us. So that one day, we're going to sit in a grander feast than Belshazzar ever could imagine with him at the center. I love how Paul, Paul the Apostle, explains this in Colossians 2.13. This, this picture of writing. And you, who were dead in your trespasses... 
in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, so, so imagine this. There's writing above every one of our heads a long, long list that you can't even fit on a, on a thumb drive of all that we've done, condemning us, all of our actions, all of our thoughts, condemning us. And Jesus takes it and he nails it upon himself. Father takes it, he nails it on the cross, and so it's totally ripped apart, it's totally erased, and it's as if it's never happened before. He cancels it. The debt has been paid. There's nothing left. And so if you have been forgiven in Christ and you're holding it on, remember, it's already been paid. It's already been ripped up to shreds. Friends, if you are here and continuing to rebel and you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life that you're harvesting, that you're just, you're just coddling, you think, you know, it's fine. God will, God will help me or, or it'll be fine. No one needs to know this. Do not assume the next day will come. See, sin won't send you to hell. It's unrepented sin that will send you to hell. When you're not trusting Jesus, your chance is now, not one day. Your chance is now. And so, as the scriptures say, today is the day. If you put your hope in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you put your hope in Jesus and reject your personal reign, you will be forgiven of everything. And you will receive everything. Namely, Jesus. You'll be accepted by the Father on account of his life and his death. If you resist, you will be weighed and found lacking. But if you trust in him, instead of the wall saying, numbered, weighed, and judged, you're going to have over you forever forgiven and loved. That's what's over you, saints. If you're trusting in Jesus today, though your past is murky and messy, if you're trusting in him and repenting freshly, that's what's over you. That's what he sings over you. Forever forgiven, loved, mine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that these are true. These words, every one of these words are true. And I know that one of the hardest things to believe about the gospel is that it seems so unbelievable, so scandalous that you could forgive us that you would weigh us, you would weigh us and found, find us wanting, and yet you would still forgive us through Jesus. What insanity. How could you love us though you, we turn from you so often? How could we love you though we've heard warnings so often? How could you love us though we've turned away so often? Thank you, Lord, for your love, and I pray that you'd help us receive this word right now. For anyone who's not trusting you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would give up their reign. They would not be like Belshazzar. They would be like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and humble themselves before you. And I pray for any one of my people, my precious people, if they're harboring, harboring sin in their heart, harboring unconfessed sin, thinking no one knows, help them remember that you know. Please, Lord, I pray that you clean house tonight. We give it all to you. Help us give it all to you, Lord. If I said anything that was unbiblical or not true, Lord, would you correct me? But everything that was true, let it ring true to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.